This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in French Studies, discussions with scholars of France and the Francophone world about their new books. I'm your host, Roxanne Penchassi. My guest today is Emile Chabal, the author of A Divided Republic, Nation, State, and Citizenship in Contemporary France. And the book was published by Cambridge University Press in 2015. Hi there, Emile. Hi. Thanks so much for taking the time to speak with me today. Oh, it's a real pleasure. Could you get us started by telling our listeners a little bit about yourself and what got you interested in working on French politics? Well, there is a personal story and there is an intellectual story. The personal story is that, is that I am French, or at least partly French. My, my father was French. Um, I'm bilingual. I, I um, spent a lot of time in France when I was growing up. And I'm a French national as well, French citizen, which is, of course, important for, for, for the book. Um, so I had a certain pre-existing connection to, to France, um, but I didn't actually imagine that I would work on France. In fact, when I was an undergraduate, I thought... France and indeed Europe was very parochial. I wanted to be a global historian. I wanted to work on the world beyond Europe. I wanted to to think about much bigger themes. And so now when I look back, I find it quite ironic that I should be working not only on France, which is is one of Europe's most important uh, countries, not so much in a normative sense, but simply in a in a historical sense, but also that I should be working on the way the French see themselves. So I've gone from being a, a very uh, large-scale historian to, to being a historian of, of one particular country's uh, navel-gazing. So that, that's a personal story. And then the intellectual story um, has to do with my early postgraduate work, my master's work. And for my master's thesis, I wrote about neo-republicanism, which, of course, is a major part of the book, and uh, what I call the crise d'intégration, the crisis of integration in France. And that project came out of a particular interest in the question of how post-colonial minorities were or were not being integrated into France. And I was absolutely fascinated by this idea of France as an exception Mm-hmm. Somehow the French political model was very unusual, very different to other kinds of political models uh, of integration in Europe. So that's where my my initial impetus for, for this work came from. In your introduction to the book, Emile, you set up the project as an examination of French politics since the 1970s. So why start in the 1970s? The 1970s was a turning point uh, in the way that I think, Western politics saw itself. The 1970s obviously is known for uh, a, a significant change in the Western economy uh, related to the, the oil shocks and the end of post-war economic growth. And I think it's interesting, the French case, because the 1970s is also the moment when Gaulism, one of the post-war France's great ideologies, 
begins to come apart. Mm-hmm. Of course, the death of de Gaulle is uh, de Gaulle dies in 1970, and um, he, his ideas carry forward and they continue to permeate the French political scene today. But they no longer have the man as their vehicle. So, so the 1970s seemed to me to be a really interesting transition point, and I really wanted to start the book where everybody else stops. Historians shy away from the very recent past and most of the work that I was reading about French politics that was historical stopped around the time of the Algerian War, which makes sense. Mm-hmm. That's when the archives are uh, are available. And later than that, things become much less clear. But but I really wanted to to open up new perspectives on the very recent past and take this period from the 1970s to the present day uh, and look at it as uh, a, a discrete period, but also look at it in historical context and tie it together with much deeper uh, and longer trends in French history. You offer the book, Emile, not as a comprehensive narrative of French political life since the 1970s, but as a study of how, and I'm quoting here, a wide range of actors have conceptualized politics and the political in France. So who are the different political actors that you are looking at in the book? Well, this is a book about the French elite. I I don't pretend otherwise. I have worked on, uh, now since the publication of the book, I have worked on other political actors who are less uh, members or less obviously members of, of the French and the Parisian elite. But But this book is really about an elite. And so... What I wanted to do was break that elite down into three different groups. The first uh, group is uh, active politicians. In other words, uh, people doing politics, uh, presidents, politicians and members of political parties, political activists and so on. The second group is intellectuals and academics. Of course, the boundary between intellectuals and academics is very porous in France. Mm. They, they form a, a really uh, crucial set of opinion formers in French society. And even if the power of the intellectual uh, is not quite as great as intellectuals like to imagine uh, it is, it nevertheless gives us a lot of clues into how French politics is changing. And then the third group is uh, journalists and civil society activists and people who are perhaps one rung down from the national political actors um, who I called politicians. These civil society activists and journalists are people who are involved in political debate, but very often they're crucial in understanding how certain ideas um, go from a very rarefied elite uh, and, and travel from the corridors of power out into French society at large. In the introduction to the book, Emile, when you're mapping out the sort of conceptual limits of, of the study, you, you describe the project as, you know, a, a look at the broad consensual middle ground in French politics. So what does this mean and who does this middle ground include? Right. Well, this is a very difficult question. I, I try and answer it by doing the work that I do in the book rather than by defining it too clearly. But Mm -hmm. one thing that is important to say at the outset and and readers will notice this immediately is that I don't analyze in any great depth the far right in France and in particular for this period, the Front National. And I don't analyze far left. I don't look at the Communist Party. 
um, the uh, Trotskyist parties, anti-globalization and anti-capitalist movements. So I've taken a fairly classic definition of center as the political parties, political entities and political debates that occupy, let's say, roughly the middle 60 to 70 percent of uh, of the electorate, those mm-hmm. who vote centre left uh, and and the centre right, in some cases the centrist parties as well. So that's how I've I've tried to define this consensual space, and I really wanted to do that because while the extremes are interesting, there's actually a lot more work in this period on those extremes. The far left, especially around and after 1968, has been the subject of of really in depth monographs, some of which are very good, some of which are less good. And um, the far right has attracted a lot of interest, particularly from political scientists and French studies um, scholars who've wanted to understand how France has uh, become the the European country with the longest lasting far right movement. But the result of that is that what's going on in the middle is often ignored or neglected. And and that's what I wanted to look at in the book. Throughout the book, you're also seeking to move beyond traditional categories of political left and right. So how and why is that so important? I think the reason that's important for me at any rate is that I don't believe the categories of left and right are adequate for an understanding of of how political debate in contemporary Europe works and particularly obviously contemporary France. It doesn't mean that left and right are ideas that should be completely discarded. I refer to the centre-left, the centre-right. I talk about right-wing variants of such and such or left-wing variants of such and such. But the purpose of the book is really to to think about alternative categories that might be used to understand how political debate actually happens in France. Emile, what are the different types of sources that you use in the book to get it? the history of political consensus that you're interested in? So the majority of sources that I use are published sources, different forms of publication, whether those are uh, history books, uh, essays, polemical articles, editorials, government reports, and and, and so on. Those form the the bulk of the sources that I'm, I'm really looking at. And The reason I'm interested in those sources is perhaps a little counterintuitive. Most historians go after sources that are unusual or have never been looked at before or have never been looked at in a particular way. And I've done exactly the opposite. Many of the things I talk about, for instance, the Stasi report or François Furet's famous essay in in Pensée la Révolution Française, these things are very, very widely known. They've been read Mm -hmm. by hundreds of thousands of people. Um, They're often freely available online. Students have studied them. Uh, Academics have poured over them. But the reason I was interested in those public texts is because the book tries to analyze the circulation of ideas, not just the origin of particular ideas, but how they move and how they change, how they're interpreted, how they're received. And the only way you can really do that is by looking at texts or sources that are uh, widely available. Otherwise, it, it, it defeats it defeats the object of, of, of what, what you're trying to do. So in addition to those sources, which are textual sources, I've also used radio debates, um, television debates, uh, 
sometimes blogs, online online forums on occasion. I've tried to use as many different uh, ways of, uh, well, as many different sources, shall we say, um, in order to elucidate as far as possible the, the different ways political debate happens in France. I wanted to ask you before we get into talking about the arguments of the book uh, about your note on translation and, of course, you know, interviewing people who work in French studies and mostly works that are published in English, books that are published in English. I, there are often notes on translation, but I was struck by yours and I wondered if you could say a little bit about the challenge of translating political terminology and the political languages that you're interested in uh, into English. Yeah, it's nice, nice that you picked that up. Um, my little note on translation at the beginning is not simply uh, a caveat, which is what notes on translations usually, usually are, which say, well, um, I take full responsibility right. for translation errors. Of course, I do uh, take full responsibility. But I also wanted to highlight um, how difficult it is not just to translate the ideas, but translate the tone and the meaning um, and the sometimes the gravity of French uh, political language. French politics can often seem like a very serious place, full of very serious language, very elevated language. And that's especially true if you start to look at uh, the, the, the world of political debate beyond active politicians and you look at, at academics and intellectuals and so on. Um, just to give one example, the, the, the French word histoire, history, it ha, can have two different meanings depending on whether it's with a small age or a capital H. So with a small age, it just means history in the sense in which we'd understand in English. But with a capital H, it, it's got much more, it's invested with much more meaning. Mm. Histoire is, is, is the forward march of history. It's, it's, it's got something almost Hegelian built into it. And that's very difficult to capture in English. Um, and I wanted to highlight that early to, to warn readers that some of the debates, although they might appear quite amusing when in translation, are actually really very serious in French. So, I mean, the book is divided into two parts. And the first is focused on writing the national narrative in contemporary France. I'm just wondering if you could elaborate a little bit on that turn of phrase and whether or not there's something peculiarly French about that preoccupation that you're interested in. I don't think that a national narrative is a specifically French thing. Um, I think all nations have stories that they tell their citizens, stories which are more or less convincing, depending on the context. But one thing that's very striking about France is the extent to which uh, the French have been explicit about identifying and telling that national story. And this goes all the way back to the Ancien Régime um, and, of course, through the French Revolution, which in a particular interpretation was all about what, what the nation could be and what the nation was. Uh, through the struggles of the 19th century um, and the Third Republic and, of course, uh, Vichy and Gaullist France. All of these different stages have involved redefinitions of the French national narrative, the French national story, mm. um, and the, the kinds of stories that are then told that feed into this 
national narrative. So what I wanted to do in the book, and it's the first section of the book, is look at how the story about the French nation has been told in the last 30, 40 years. And to do that, I've picked the, 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 the idea of republicanism as, as the guiding thread. What can we understand about the French national narrative um, by looking at the history of republicanism in this period? So, and you refer to this uh, republicanism as neo-republicanism in this period. And I'm, and I'm just wondering, you know, what accounts for its return during the period that you're looking at? Yeah, it's very interesting. Um, one of the, the historical myths that I wanted to, to debunk in the book is the idea that republicanism has uh, been a triumphant ideology for, for the last 250 years, at least since the French Revolution. Um, that's, that's wrong, uh, as many of, of, of your listeners will know. Um, republicanism was a very fragile ideology uh, through the 19th century. Mm. And in fact, it was also a fragile ideology for much of the 20th century, under threat from the far right, of course, uh, and even after the Second World War, under threat from, from the Communist Party, who had a, a, an unusual uh, and very ambiguous relationship to, to French republicanism. So what makes the period I study interesting is precisely that from the 1970s, with the disappearance of communism on the one hand, and or at least a slow disappearance of communism and a slow disappearance of Gaulism on the other, suddenly there's space for republicanism, for a new kind of republicanism, for neo-republicanism to dominate. And where you see that most clearly is in these intellectual debates that, in a sense, precede uh, the the emergence, the public emergence of uh, republicanism in the late 1980s. And those two debates, one uh, set of debates belongs to the modern French historiography, in other words, mm -hmm. writing history, and um, particularly around the Lieu de Mémoire project, Pierre Nora's uh, famous project, which, which came to fruition in the 1980s and was eventually published as a series of very influential books. And on the other hand... Uh, the move by certain intellectuals who were uh, who had grown up uh, and and been formed by by Marxism, the move on the part of those intellectuals towards republicanism. So you've got this tw these twin origins of the republican revival in in the nineteen seventies and eighties, um, a change in modern French history and a this conversion, if you like, from Marxism to to republicanism. You make the point in different ways in this section and throughout the book, Emile, that we shouldn't take your designation of this field of politics as neo-republicanism as, the, as, the, as, as an argument for some kind of homogenous political field, and that there are different and competing meanings of the republic and republicanism. And you also uh, make a distinction between transformative and institutional narratives and republicanism. Could you say a little bit more about that? Yes, yeah, very, very important. I, I don't want to essentialize the category of neo-republicanism, just as I don't want to essentialize the category of liberalism, which is what the second part of the book is about. I, I refer instead to languages of politics, um, languages that can be used, that have very strong meanings, but they can be manipulated, they can be changed, they can be deployed at different times. So 
it's 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 crucial to keep that in mind um, when thinking about what 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 the book's trying to do. Nevertheless, I think it's useful to try to develop some sort of coherent definition, if you like, of what what I'm actually talking about. And in the case of republicanism, um, in the first chapter uh, in particular, I, I build up this idea of, on the one hand, a an institutional republicanism. In other words, institutions of the republic are what form the bedrock of the republic. One thinks particularly of the um, of the republican school, and on the other, uh, a, a transformative republicanism. In other words, republicanism as a, uh, a, a as an idea that carries with it um, notions of progress uh, and rationality and improvement, and those two versions of republicanism, if you like, the institutional and the transformative, correspond roughly to more traditional political boundaries. So the institutional republican story is one that's often told by people on the right or the centre-right, um, and the transformative story is much more attractive to those on on the centre-left who, 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 who hold on to republicanism as a, as, as a form of progressive ideology. You go on in the book to talk about, well, throughout the book, you talk about a number of different figures. You mentioned Nora, you talk about Régis Debray. Um, I'm, I'm wondering if you could just say a little bit more about who the leaders of uh, this Republican revival are uh, in this period, particularly those who are connected or formerly connected to, to the French left. There are many different leaders i don't think there's a there's a single figure really i think there there are clusters different clusters that come together uh at 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 particular moments so so one cluster as as you mentioned is uh, a cluster of historians piano is best known but uh, you also see figures like maurice agulon and claude nicolet who get very interested in in Republicanism not simply as an object of historical study, but also as something that has uh, validity for contemporary society. So if you look at the, 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 the writings about contemporary France of people like Nicolas Nagulon, you, you can see them trying to bring their historical knowledge to bear on, on, on the present day. In terms of philosophers and intellectuals, the two figures who I talk about in the second chapter of the book are Régis Debray and Alain Ficolcroute, both products of uh, of the 1960s, um, and Africa Court, of course, uh, an erstwhile nouveau philosophe uh, and Maoist from the from from May 68. Um, so, with a particular pedigree and a particular lineage, and he he his notion of republicanism is very very strongly institutional. Um, it's for for him, republicanism is is the French school, is French culture. Is, um, is, is a very strong French value system. Régis Debré, by contrast, has came to republicanism in the 1980s when he was uh, co-opted by François Mitterrand to be involved in, um, in the, the Young Socialist Administration, the first Socialist Administration of 81. Um, and he saw uh, republicanism as a way of bringing together the revolutionary aspirations he had had as, uh, as a youngster when he went off to Latin America and the present-day exigencies of government. In other words, republicanism could be, at the same time, a language of government administration as well as being 
a, a language of, of revolution. And then beyond that, there are there are other figures um, who were not intellectuals or academics. One might talk about a wonderful example is someone like Jean-Pierre Chevènement, um, who uh, had a long journey through the, the, the French Socialist Party from, from the Marxist think tank, um, the Marxist group in the party, Ceres, all the way uh, uh, through various administrations, um, uh, playing different roles, different ministerial roles. So that there are also figures outside uh, academia, outside the intelligentsia, who've been vehicles for, for neo-republicanism. After looking at the ideas of historians and philosophers and intellectuals, you examine the ways that these ideas played out in political space and the daily life of French politics. What were some of the major milestones in the establishment of this neo-Republican consensus uh, since the 1970s? Yeah, well, I mean, it was very important to me right from the beginning in the book to... um, to show not simply where ideas had come from, but what was being done with them. And mm-hmm. for that, I needed to, to do much more old-fashioned political history, as you say, um, tell the stories of, of policies, of debates, of arguments, and so on. And in the, the, the third fourth chapters of the book, I argue very strongly for 1989 as being a key point of convergence um, for this neo-republican consensus. 1989, why? Well, 1989 was the year of the bicentenary of the French Revolution, the year of the collapse of the Berlin Wall, and the year of the headscarf affair. And so what that did was it brought together the different strands we've just been talking about. The fall of the Berlin Wall, of course, raised the prospect of uh, the end of communism and and the the, the collapse not just of a wall but of a whole system of thought that had dominated the European and the global left in the 20th century. The the Bicentenary of the French Revolution, of course, was an occasion for a reassessment of the French past. And um, as we'll talk about perhaps a bit later on when we look at liberalism, the sense amongst many uh, historians was that the, the 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 flame had gone out. The passion was no longer there in 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 French politics. That somehow the the bicentenary of the French Revolution marked the end of political debate in France, and so republicanism was needed to re-energize French political debate. And lastly, of course, the headscarf affair, the the symbol now the symbol today of uh, France's post-colonial predicament. And so it, that the the headscarf affair introduced the question of immigration, integration, ethnic minorities into this existing, uh, this existing cluster of, uh, or emerging cluster of ideas about, about republicanism. So it fused all, all three of them together. And after that, into the 1990s and the 2000s, a lot, a lot of very, very interesting debates that, uh, that take place in, in French politics in which neo-republicanism becomes a, a, key, uh, a, a key battleground. I want to just follow up on something you just said, Emil, about the post-colonial. I'm wondering, it plays an important role in both parts of the book, the part focused on neo-republicanism and the part of the book focused on on liberalism. How are you using uh, post-colonialism as a, well, as a condition and as a set of ideas uh, and ways of reading uh, throughout the book? I think the first thing to say about that is that I wanted to make post-colonialism part of the story of French politics. One, one of the difficulties that I've 
have with a lot of the literature on post-colonial France is it tends to treat post-colonial questions entirely independently of other things that are happening um, in, in France. And, and this seems to be very problematic because it, it separates the post-colonial question, uh, whatever that may be, whether that is uh, uh, discontent in the banlieue, whether that is a headscarf, whether that is the role of Islam in French society, it separates this from other debates that are going on. And so in, in the book, what I wanted to do was say, okay, we need to take post-colonialism very seriously. We need to think about how post-colonial questions to do with immigration, integration and religion have penetrated French politics. But at the same time, we need to situate these within the broader picture of other debates that are perhaps less well known or, or less fashionable. Mm-hmm. And I think it's it, what, what post-colonial does in the first section of the book is... It allows, it, it gives, if you like, neo-republicanism a much wider reach. I think that if neo-republicanism was something that was solely attached to um, to French Marxism and to French historiography, this wouldn't have given it the traction and the power um, that uh, that we see now, that we now associate with with this with this political language. It needed something else. And and immigration and all of the questions surrounding immigration provided that something else. Mm. The Front National's uh, politicisation of immigration in the 1980s, that was crucial because the centre-left defined a Republican platform against the Front National. Um, the headscarf affair was, was vital because it, 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 it offered a very simple, or apparently a very simple debate uh, around which a neo-Republican consensus could could crystallise. Um, similarly, with the question of ethnic statistics and whether the French state should collect statistics based on ethnic uh, categories, which of course it doesn't, there again there was the opportunity for a neo-Republican consensus to emerge. Um, so these post-colonial questions have given neo-Republicanism much, much more purchase hmm. in, uh, in, in, in French politics than it otherwise would have. You also examine the role of the Anglo-American world in French politics during this period. So how has the Anglo-American served as a kind of counter model for, for French uh, in, in these French political languages that, you, that you're exploring? And how has Anglo-Saxon uh, figured, uh, that term Anglo-Saxon, how has it figured in, in these French political languages over the decades that you examine in the book? It's funny because that work on on the Anglo-Saxon was actually something slightly separate from, from, from the PhD. And, and I wanted to find a way to incorporate it because mm. what I find very interesting about the, the, the term Anglo-Saxon is a way that it's been used as a placeholder um, for discussions about the outside world. In other words, the way France and the French uh should be and what they should not be. So the origins of the term Anglo-Saxon, not in its not not in its use referring to the the historical society of you know, Anglo-Saxon society, but in, in its contemporary usage to refer to the Anglo-American world, dates back to the 1860s, and it it's used repeatedly in the late 19th century um, and again in in the interwar years as. Uh, a, a, a way of talking about French decline, about cons- concerns about 
France no longer having the economic or cultural power that it that it once had, and the, that that function has been replicated in the more recent past, in the period that I discuss in the book. And so, what I try and show in that chapter is how, again, neo republicanism has crystallized around an opposition to what uh, many French people perceive to be the Anglo-Saxon model. In other words, uh, free market capitalism, multiculturalism, uh, and and forms of, of diversity politics. And these the, these attributes of the Anglo-Saxon are, are things against which uh, neo-republicanism has defined itself. And so, what's very interesting here is to think of, is to think of this classic theories of nationalism is to think about how a nation has to define itself against other nations mm. and that's that's what i'm trying to do in that in that chapter introduce uh, an other if you like into the story of french republicanism so that it doesn't just become a story about the the way the french think about themselves but also the way the french think about uh neighboring countries and what about the idea of europe Amy? Really important. Uh, the idea of Europe, I mean, it's important to French politics in, in a general sense, but what uh, is what was certainly relevant to me when writing the book was to uh, think about how neo-republicanism has acted as a, as a vehicle for a, a particular kind of French Euroscepticism. That is, uh, opposition to to the development of Europe as as a neoliberal uh, superstate. Hmm. So whereas in Britain one gets Euroscepticism that is hostile to the European project as a whole, um, mm-hmm. a lot of French Euroscepticism is hostile to the direction in which Europe is going. It's not quite the same thing. And this plays a very important part in, 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 in that chapter where I talk about the outside world precisely because uh, neo-republicans have often argued for greater sovereignty and greater independence of France within the European project. The second part of the book, Emile, is focused on liberal critics of contemporary France. So how are you using the terms liberalism and liberal in the book? And what are have been the specificities of French liberalism and its history? The short answer to that is with great difficulty. Um <laughs> It's it's very difficult to use the word liberalism in Britain, in the United States, in France, because in each place liberalism has very different different meaning, and it is very easy to to be misunderstood. I don't use liberalism in the book as, in, in its doctrinal sense. I'm not really trying to define liberalism in the abstract. What I'm trying to do in the second part of the book is build up a coherent picture of all of the different counter-narratives that have emerged since the 1970s uh, in opposition to the neo-republican consensus of the first part of the book. Mm. So in that sense, my definition of liberalism is derivative of neo-republicanism. Nevertheless, it has certain specificities which scholars of French liberalism will recognise. So for instance, uh, right back to the, the early 19th century, French liberalism has always been more interested in social organization and the functioning of the state 
than British or American liberalism. And, and these are concerns that, that come back in, in the more contemporary period. So whereas in the Anglo-American world, liberalism is often associated with, with ideas of a smaller state, um, that's not really the case in France, uh, and that never really was the case uh, in, in, in French liberalism. So that at least allows me to, to draw on a coherent historical uh, trajectory and which is unusual to, to French liberalism but as I say in the book what I'm what I'm trying to do is 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 bring together very diverse uh, counter narratives that challenge uh, have have challenged neo-republicanism in France so what were the intellectual and philosophical roots of the liberal revival of the period since the 1970s there are many and varied. Um, there are friends and colleagues of mine who've done wonderful work on this, who are much more uh, familiar with the some of the intellectual ins and outs of, of the so-called liberal revival. Um, what I've been interested in, what I focus on in the book, is how they, they play out in the more obviously political sphere. So in, in a way, the second half of the book is an echo of the first half. The dialogue that's happening in real life, in other words, out there, historically speaking, is also happening in, in the book. So in the same way that in the first part of the book, I look at Pierre Nora and Nicolet and Agulon, the way they try to read French history in, in, in a very Republican way. In the second half of the book, I'm, I'm very interested in uh, François Furet and Pierre Rosanvalon's reinterpretation of French history, the way they change the emphasis um, of modern French history to uh, to stress uh, the, the the liberal potential of France, or to stress the the dangers of uh, of, of revolutionary terror. Similarly, uh, the way in the first half, I think uh, I, I look at the, the trajectories of Regis Debré and Alain Finkielkraut. In the second half of the book, I look at the the cluster of young intellectuals who um, uh, were heavily influenced by the ideas of the great liberal. Uh, philosopher and sociologist Raymond Aron, mm-hmm. and I, I, I examine how they took what they thought his liberalism was and um, institutionalized that through certain publications like the journal Commentaire, through certain institutions um, like the, the, the Centre Raymond Aron and so on. And then finally, politically, just as I looked uh, at the kind of political origins of, uh, of neo-republicanism in the reformulation of the centre-left and its, its struggle to define itself against the Front National, the origins of the, the political liberal revival in France uh, lie in the late 1960s, early 1970s, um, in the, 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 the reformist administration of, of, of Valéry Giscard d'Estaing, and indeed Jacques Chabandelmas before him. Um, and these, this moment provides uh, provides a model for what French liberalism could potentially be, um, and that carries through. It carries through the Chirac administration of eighty six to eighty eight, and it reemerges again in different ways on the centre left in under uh, Michel Rocard in the nineteen nineties, and and with Nicolas Sarkozy in in, in, to, in the mid to late two thousand. So. So there are, again, these three different origins for, for, for what I call the liberal revival. Just as in the first part of the book, you look at uh, postcolonialism and, and the postcolonial, in the second part of the book, you're also looking at postcolonial critiques of uh, neo-republicanism. So I wanted to ask you about this, the decision to locate 
uh, the post-colonial in this section on liberalism and what's behind that sort of thinking and what some of the the critiques are of neo-republicanism that come uh, from from the post-colonial? It's a really good question. Um, I suppose it's one of the more controversial aspects of the book, at, at least if I'm if I'm to believe uh, the, the various critics who have uh, talked to me about the book since it's been published. Um, the idea of bringing post-colonial critiques of neo-republicanism under the ban of liberalism when many of the actors I'm talking about would reject and sometimes reject very firmly Mm -hmm. uh, the the term liberalism is obviously a controversial one. But what I'm trying to do is show that actually the origins in many ways of uh, the post-colonial critique of neo-republicanism uh, actually lie in a form of, of, of French liberalism. And you can see that in the ni- early 1980s with the, the Droit à la Différence movement, the Right to Difference movement, a group of, uh, of, of left-wing activists and, and socialist politicians and so on who are very committed to bringing uh, difference into the French political sphere, undermining the Jacobin model, what they saw as the, the Jacobin model of state centralization, uh, and introduce policies that would explicitly celebrate and encourage ethnic diversity, linguistic diversity, uh, and, and, and so on. And likewise, I think in, in the 2000s, um, so now I'm jumping forward 20 years, in, in my view, a lot of what we recognize now as French identity politics, uh, whether that comes in the form of a group like the Indigène de la République or um, the formation of the Conseil représentatif des associations noires, the, the, the CRAN in 2005, again has its origins in a, in a form of uh, liberal, multicultural ethic. In other words, the idea that, uh, that it's not only uh, the reality of French society to, to, to be multicultural, but also that it's a good thing that we, we celebrate multiculturalism. So, of course, members of the Indigène de la République um, were primarily drawn from from Trotskyist movements, from uh, pro-Palestine movements, so very, very anti-liberal in their right. discourse. But their function in um, it, within French politics, which is really kind of what I'm interested in, fits with this much, much broader critique um, of republicanism, neo-republicanism, as just a repackaged form of Jacobinism, as just a repackaged form of French nationalism, something you hear quite a lot. And so I, I, I felt it, the, the way they were talking about the French nation, many of these post-colonial critics, was so similar to the way other uh, liberal critics were, were discussing the, the French nation that I, I decided to, to put, them, put them together with people who, who, with whom they would otherwise be very uncomfortable with. You go on, Emile, to examine the language of crisis that has played a key role in, in French politics in the period that you're looking at. So how has the language of crisis figured in efforts to reform the French state? Well, I'm glad we get a chance to talk about that chapter because I think it's my favorite chapter. I don't know if I'm allowed to have favorites, but but it's sure. a chapter I, I really liked, in part because nobody's really done any work on this uh, at all, which is really surprising because anyone, and I really mean anyone who has any interaction with French people on a regular basis will know that um, 
that the French continuously and permanently think uh, their country is is uh, in in crisis, whether that's economic crisis, social crisis, um, uh, ethnic crisis, religious crisis. It, it's 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 an omnipresent part of French political discussion. And interestingly, it's often accompanied by very vivid uh, bodily metaphors, metaphors about illness, the sickness of the body politic, the, f- the, f- the schizophrenia of the French people, the depression of the French people. And, uh, and, and I actually often joked with, with my colleagues that in, in North America, they have kind of self-help books uh, that are for individuals, how to make individuals great again, better leaders, more, uh, more potent uh, in the workplace, more powerful, um, more positive. In France, a lot of the books are collective self-help. In other words, how to make France great again, how to make uh, the French people strong, how France can lift itself out of depression. Um, and I and I just found this so interesting that I wanted to look at it in more depth. And once I started to look at it, I realized that the language of crisis has not it's not just an epiphenomenon. It's not just something which the French talk about and they, they don't really think about what they talk about. It actually plays a really important role in how politics is, is, is done in France. And in that chapter, I trace the contemporary iteration of the language of crisis because i think earlier periods of history have had similar things but the contemporary iteration of that to um the work of uh, michel crozier the sociologist michel Mm. crozier much underrated and much understudied figure in uh, french french intellectual life and i look at how he essentially brings together a variety of ideas from historians like like stanley hoffman and and puts them together in this in this this concept of the blocked society, La Société Bloquée, famous essay published in the 70s. And that idea of France as a blocked society coincided with the end of the 30 glorious years, the 30 glorious and economic crisis. And gradually over the course of the 1980s, this idea of crisis begins to take hold. And you see it in, in radio debates, on, on TV, you see it in editorials, this continuous discussion of crisis. And the, my argument is that actually this discourse of crisis has allowed, it, well, it's acted as a kind of cover or vehicle perhaps for, for the advancement of French liberalism. French liberals have found it very difficult to argue for reform. Uh, and this, again, you can trace back to the late 19th century, but very, very difficult to argue for reform on liberal grounds. But once they're able to phrase the necessity of reform within an idea of crisis, then they can sell that to uh, to policymakers, to politicians, and ultimately to, to, to the French electorate as a whole. How has liberalism's counter-narrative influenced party politics in France uh, in the period that you're looking at? Well, this is a, a, a difficult historiographical question because uh, most scholars of France, certainly French politics, have argued that French liberalism politically is very weak, um, that it doesn't really have much in the way of identity. There's no liberal party. There are very few people willing to call themselves liberals. Um, Tony Judge famously argued this in Past Imperfect. Jack Haywood has made a similar argument. Um, there's there's a widespread belief, especially in the Anglo-American world, that, that France is a fundamentally illiberal polity. Uh, it's not necessarily always a bad thing, but that liberalism can't really take hold. 
And actually what I try and show is that that's not entirely true. Uh, liberalism is clearly a an ideology that's difficult to acknowledge publicly, uh, as any French liberal will, will tell you. First of all, Rémois Aron was continuously lamenting the fact that he was marginalised for being a liberal. But um, actually, it's, liberal ideas have found a home both on the centre-right and, and the centre-left. So earlier I was mentioning uh, the, the, the Giscard presidency um, and then looking at some of the ways in which people like um, Alain Madelin or, uh, or um, Jean-Pierre Raffarin, uh, the prime minister un- under Chirac, took forward some of these liberal ideas about decentralization, tried to fashion a kind of French neoliberalism. In other words, making the French comfortable with market with the market economy. Um, and that, so that was on the right. And then on the left, uh, the, the major liberal strand within the centre-left is what uh, most political historians of France would call the second left. Um, that is the left that coalesced around Michel Rocard in the late 1970s and today is embodied in, in figures like, uh, like Manuel Valls and Emmanuel Macron. And that strand, I argue, has actually been quite powerful uh, within, within French socialism, but it's always struggled... Uh, against a very different, uh, very much more uh, orthodox, uh, Jacobin socialist tradition. So although neither liberal strand within French politics has really ever been dominant for a long period of time, uh, I do think they've been extremely influential. And that's what I'm trying to to show in in that final chapter. You end the book with, uh, in your concluding remarks, with the search for consensus in 21st century France. So I guess I'm wondering what in the last 16 years have been the significant turning points and how do you see the book as a contribution to our understanding of very recent uh, events and debates uh, in the French political field? Search for consensus, yes, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's difficult. Um, today, more than when I finished writing the book, uh, it feels like we're a very long way from consensus. And mm. I think readers uh, picking up the book today might be surprised by this idea that there's actually a consensus in, in French politics, or indeed in any politics anywhere. Um, the reason I said that and the reason I made... Uh, reason I wanted to push that conclusion is is partly because looking at French history uh, in the long durée, so looking back to the to the early twentieth of the nineteenth century, actually France is remarkably stable now, um, and French politics is fairly predictable, uh, and the French parliamentary system is well entrenched, and there's absolutely no risk of. Uh, of of dictatorship or of um, of of political collapse, at least in in the immediate or even in the medium term. So, it seems to me to be quite important to to think of this as a different phase in French political history, in which we are uh, we we can't trace political or the boundaries of political debate as clearly as we could in the past. Um, we have to look more deeply we have to analyze some of the the debates I've, I've talked about and actually see what the dividing lines are between different actors and that for me is is the lesson 
uh, of the book, even as we analyse contemporary politics. One of the things that I absolutely wanted to, uh, to, to reject in the book uh, is this idea that there aren't really any debates left in politics today. Again, this might seem a little bit odd in 2016, but when I began my research, one of the things that uh, that was very, very, a very common refrain amongst commentators, amongst journalists, amongst academics in France and elsewhere was that political debate today is really not what it was. It, it, the, the, the big questions are not there. The, the big issues are not there. Everyone essentially agrees on everything. Now, again, hard to sustain in the light of, of, of a Donald Trump or of, of Brexit, but, but that idea seemed to me to be fundamentally wrong. And in the book, what I try and do is I take this period which supposedly uh, had no big debates that were supposedly uh, anti-ideological or, uh, or, 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 you know, in the terms that we use in the 1990s, the end of history, and show that... In reality, uh, people continue to argue very vigorously about absolutely vital political matters. And the challenge for us as, as scholars of contemporary politics is to think about what those questions actually are. And, um, and so one of the big ones in the book is, is citizenship, right? Mm -hmm. So who is a citizen? Who can be a citizen? On what terms? What is the meaning of citizenship? Another one in, uh, that comes out, regularly in the book is the idea of the state. How big should the state be? What should it do? How can the state change? Should we maintain the state as it is? And France is a wonderful case study because the French argue about these things and have argued about these things very explicitly. So we can begin to trace new dividing lines, new fault lines in, in contemporary politics that way. I'm just wondering, Emil, how one might use the book um, to shed some light on something like the upcoming presidential election and the broadening of the base of support for uh, the Front National, for example. Like if you think about um, your interest in consensus and the middle, where, where is the middle now and is it changing? I don't know. Um, historians make very bad predictors of the future. <laughs> and, and I always tell that. Uh, to, to journalists or anyone else trying to, to make me predict the future. Um, I think the book can help understand where we are now. Whether the book can help understand right now is, is a different question, but mm. I, I hope that, that the book, which really is conceived as much uh, in terms of a long essay as, as a monograph, I, I hope that the, that the book gives readers some of the tools to think about how political debate has been happening in France. In terms of the upcoming presidential election, in terms of the Front National, I mean, one of the things that, that's been really striking to me and, and quite unsettling is the degree to which neo-republicanism, in exactly the sense in which I analyse it in the book, has gone from being the preserve of the broad centre to being the absolute basic language of French politics all the way from the far right to the far left. Mm. And I hadn't entirely anticipated that. So, so while on the one hand I'm very pleased that my conclusions are being vindicated um, and that actually neo-republicanism is extremely important, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm a little bit 
confused about how to interpret its adoption by Marine Le Pen or by Trotsky's movements who are suddenly talking about republicanism in ways that they wouldn't even have dreamt of doing 10 years ago. And that seems to me to be to be a problem that that's in, incomplete. I don't really know the extent to which the French electorate takes seriously, for instance, um, Marine Le Pen's republicanism. If you look at the, the recent uh, regional elections, you'll see that uh, the idea of a Republican front came back into fashion, a Republican front precisely to uh, to protect against the Front National, which shows that perhaps Republicanism hasn't lost all of the meaning uh, that, uh, that, that, that it still has. Um, so I think that's something which is, is very, very difficult to, 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 to understand. At the same time, the reason the book is in two parts, the reason the book is not just a study of neo-republicanism is what I thought it would be when I started my research in 2006, 2007, mm-hmm. is because I, I am convinced that while neo-republicanism is a, a, a powerful ideology um, in, and a powerful language, to use my words, in French politics, it's not the only one. Mm-hmm. And that not all French people think like that. Uh, and, and I sometimes get frustrated outside France when, um, when commentators or journalists and sometimes even serious academics uh, caricature France as a land where everybody seems to be uh, in under the spell of this mysterious uh, Republican model. I, I don't think that's the case. I think that they, they, most French people understand what the Republican model is, but they draw on other things and they have other concerns and other interests politically. And, and that's what I'm trying to bring out in the, the second half of the book. So what are you working on now, Emile? A couple of things. In relation to France, I, I'm working on, well, I've been working on for a while uh, a study of local politics, um, particularly uh, centred on Montpellier. And I'm, I'm very interested in identity politics and multiculturalism in, in Montpellier, um, what that means, uh, the, 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 the legacy of, of, of the Pied-Noir migration to, to the south of France, mm. um, things which seem to me to be interesting because they reflect some of the national themes I looked at in the book. And it's been, it's been great actually to work at a local level and just to get away from, from the, the insularity of, of, of the left bank in Paris and actually sort of look <laughs> what, what real political actors down in the field are doing. And, um, and it's been really striking to see how particular political actors have used uh, neo-republicanism or invoked particular ideas of liberalism and how they've played with uh, ideas that I talk about in the book, like multiculturalism or secularism, um, and, and see how that has actually worked at a local level. The other thing I'm doing in relation to France is uh, developing a little bit more of an understanding about French anti-liberalism and anti-capitalism. And I, this came really from a critique that was, um, that was directed at me many years ago, long before the book came out, uh, where somebody said, you know, talk about liberalism is all very well, but, but don't you think France is not just illiberal, but anti-liberal? And I thought, well, that's interesting. I should think about that. And so mm-hmm. recently I've been looking at the way French anti-capitalist thinkers, and I'm I, I understand anti-capitalism here as a form of French anti-liberalism. 
um, the way these thinkers have tried to contend with the rise of neoliberalism. Emil, I just want to thank you so much for joining me and for writing the book. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you.